Welcome everyone to the Learn With Wolf show. Uh, today we're joined with Jim Contrell. He was one of the founders of SpaceX, the founding team. He's been a entrepreneur in the space space for you know decades now, even been consulting for as, as well on, on many different things. So he, he knows space, he knows this technology, he knows what's the future, where it's going. And today we talk about what he's building now at Phantom. It's a couple year old uh, startup that is building satellites and rockets. We get into rocket engine, kind of like his thought process around de developing this type of system, an integrated system like that. Uh, his hopes and dreams and his goals for what Phantom is going to be, as well as talking about how to build hiring and culture around uh, something with such a huge mission as this. We also touch in on aliens a little bit. You know, I've been seeing a lot of stuff in the news, so I thought we'd talk about that with an expert uh, in space and see what his thoughts are. So we get into that as well. Some book recommendations at the end. And uh, if you like this, share, like, subscribe, do all these things. We're everywhere. And uh, let me know what you think. Without further ado, let's get into this. We were just talking about this, but uh, for people just listening in, we were kind of doing the numbers. I was looking at it previously and, and Jim and I were just talking. And I think, uh, Jim, you might be the most uh, prolific entrepreneur in the space space. I don't think there's anyone who's founded as many uh, companies as you. Um, if, if there is, I don't know of them. I was actually doing like a bit of research on this. And I think if, if, if you look at it like sheer number and, 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 uh, and breadth, you, you, I think you might be number one. It could be. I, you know, my consulting company, I started after I left SpaceX, we, uh, we worked with, I don't know, something like a hundred different clients and, you know, some, some of them we took uh, equity positions with, but mostly it was helping them grow to get sold to larger companies. And that really was a nice intro into the, the commercial side, which was started showing up in about 2010. So yeah, I've been involved in, uh, by, by my count, 11 startups, uh, some of my own, some of other people's. And uh, it's, you know, of, of those, I, I think probably eight of them would be considered successful. And, uh, you know, but you'll learn the most from the ones that aren't successful. And uh, one of the things I've learned about startups, that it's a totally different mentality. And, and one of the key things is your money's very precious, especially in the early days. And you, you really only spend your money on one of two things, you know, either something that gets you to the next fundraise that helps you raise that next round of money, which is ideally every time bigger at a better valuation of your company. And then the second thing is you spend it only on those things that gets you to an ultimate milestone. So if you're building a software uh, uh, product, for example, what gets you to your first beta product, if you're building a rocket, what gets you to your first flight to space. Mm -hmm. So, so you have to really follow that pretty pretty uh, resolutely to, to make it turn out because, you know, raising money is a, is a, a non-scientific uh, endeavor. I will tell you it's, it's, I don't even even call it artistic. It's just uh, almost this random thing of, you know, going out and uh, trying to connect these uh, disparate points and, and uh, get people to believe in your vision and, and you and what you're doing and, and write big checks. And so it takes time. And a lot of times it takes longer than you think. And even the most pessimistic of us uh, sometimes get it wrong. So you don't want to run out of money. That's number one rule is never run out of cash, right? So, uh, so yeah, that, that's, that's the, one of the biggest things I think I've learned. The other one is really probably even more important, which is you have to be very simpatico with your, with your uh, co-founders. Very few people, by the way, are, you know, sole founders. And, and I, I think there's sort of a psychology to not being a, a, a sole founder, right? I, there's so many pressures. There's so many things that you can't see as an individual that you need other people to bounce ideas off. You really need co-founders, at least one, uh, two is two, two, you know, three as a total is a nice, nice number, right? If you get too many, it's, it's a different story, but they have to be really in line with you. You have to be so aligned. It's almost like being married mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, you're, you're sharing money, you're sharing a vision, you're, you're practically living together. Um, and if, if you get the wrong people, uh, that's really bad. You know, I've, I, uh, had, had gone through a bad marriage and it, and, you know, bad co-founders look the same to me. It's mm -hmm. equally as painful, maybe more. Yeah. The, uh, what was, uh, what, what helped you see that this co-founder would match for the vision for what you're trying to do now? Well, so, so, so I've got two co-founders right now in, in Phantom and uh, one of them I've known for quite some time and um, 
you know, so there's that experience space, but, you know, I've had co-founders I've known for 20 years that turned out to be not so good. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were, they were very good at hiding who they were. And when you get into the, the, the thick of things, you find out exactly what somebody's made of. So, so these guys uh, that I'm with now, you know, um, they, they, one of them just came to me after, after I left the last company I was with and said, Hey, let's do something. I don't care what it is. I want to, I want to be in business with you, with you because I like the way you think about things. I like the way you do things. And it wasn't just to ride my coattails. I, I know enough about the guy that, that, you know, we both brought uh, what I call two plus two equals eight. Right. So, mm-hmm. so that's what you look for is where somebody really fits in your weaknesses and you fit in their weaknesses and, and with your strengths. And uh, my third co-founder uh, much younger than us showed up um, very early on and was just totally enthusiastic about the space. So, you know, we brought him on and, and set some some uh, some milestones, and he's just he's just uh, really uh, outperformed himself, you know. So so we've you know through the heat of battle, we've discovered that we really are simpatico, and and that's 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 the important thing. And you have to extend that again to all the people you hire. All the key people mm-hmm. have to be really really aligned with with what you're all about, and uh, that's kind of hard to hard to come by sometimes. In terms of uh, domain expertise, of the three of you, like who's the expert in what? So I'm, I'm kind of the technology expert, especially when it comes to launch vehicles and satellites. And then Mike D'Angelo, um, he, he's got a degree from MIT in engineering, so he's, he's no dummy when it comes to technology. But he's, he's much more the business side. He's much more the, the guy who keeps uh, the, the gears turning and, and very cautious with money and, and, and that. So he brings that kind of discipline. And he also was in venture capital for a while. So he understands that side of it very, very well. And then Michael Perwata uh, actually was one of the first people to map uh, the human mind with a computer and able to get the uh, computer to read brain signals uh, mm. for robotics. So very, very bright young guy. And uh, he just got interested in space. So right now uh, he's, he's he and I are raising money. He's doing the majority of it. Uh, but uh, he's also got a uh, uh, a whole lot of uh, expertise technically, and uh, uh, you know, over time he'll he'll be an rocket expert like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always feel like uh, when people are setting out to build something, um, like they always feel like the bar needs to be really high. Like I need to be, you know, perfect at all these things. And really, if you have like a great team, and it sounds like you have a great founding team, uh, you guys can bounce off of each other. And what you don't know, you can pick up. It's really just do you have the foundation to pick it up. You know, um, right. I, you know, it's like paralysis by analysis for some people for, you know, especially like, uh, for <laughs> people those people. yeah. Yeah. Uh, avoid them. Yeah. The, um, so what, what, what do you, what do you consider to be the, the really interesting thing, especially across your, your entire history of and, and experience is when you, when you, when you look at stuff, you really can see the context of what makes it special. And so I'm curious, what, what is the special sauce in what you're building today that you think really sets it apart from uh, potentially what you've done in the past and how you think it's going to fit into the future? Yeah. Uh, one remark before I go into my own particular situation, uh, it's not so easy to see that special sauce from the outside, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of us miss it. You know, I've, I've stumbled over a number of fortunes in my life, you know, including the internet, which I didn't think would be a big deal. And then uh, electric cars, I didn't think would be a big deal and so on. So I can give you numerous examples. So uh, in, in, in our case, um, what we think makes us unique and special is, is we're inheriting an industry that really has been government dominated. Um, it was a sole domain of governments for many years. And uh, what we want to be is the, the Henry Ford of, of the space transportation industry and the space infrastructure. And by, by uh, applying mass manufacturing like Henry Ford did, we think we could bring the cost down so that the uh, the overall uh, industry will expand, it'll 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 attract more people who are bright, who aren't necessarily satellite engineers or rocket engineers, to come in and help solve problems, create value using using space as a part of the economy. So, our our theory is much like Henry Ford expanded you know, terrestrial transportation. We can do the same thing through mass manufacturing. And there's a lot of people that talk the talk, but we're one of the few that's really doing the walk. And uh, we, we're bringing in executives from uh, from industry that uh, have been in the automotive industry. We're uh, bringing in experienced uh, executives that have been part of SpaceX and part of some of these other early startup rocket companies 
Uh, we, we brought in people who experienced the satellites and uh, you know, ones who, who've helped build constellations of hundreds of these things. So, so we're gonna apply you know, as much of this kind of skill as we can find to this problem. And uh, we, we believe that the problem is much more than just manufacturing is you know, how do you actually launch a, a lot of these rockets around the world and really what's a, again, we're running into the government, the government owned ranges where um, you know, it's a very constrained amount of ranges and a very constrained number of flights you can work, work out of there, you know, due to environmental constraints. So we're working through all of that. And we think we can, you know, work through the government barriers that are there and in some extent come up with our own solutions. But, you know, still we're, we're, we're having to start with where the government is. But mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a tall hill to climb. And uh, that's where we're unique because we're really trying to solve those problems rather than just recognizing the market potential of it. Makes sense. So what, um, what are you building in-house versus integrating with other people um, uh -huh. specifically? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the differences, um, again, we realized through prior experiences was we started with a clean sheet technologically uh, and, and with every idea on the table. And one of them was supply chain. So in the rocket business, people are copying what Elon and, and SpaceX did, which was to build everything internally. It's called vertical integration. Mm -hmm. And vertical integration uh, was necessary at the time we did this 20 years ago because the supply chain was really uh, was really owned more or less by the military industrial complex and was, was subject to the cost uh, structure that was, was really supported by the government. Uh, in other words, high. So the other problem was, you know, if you're going to disrupt the industry, and you're using supply chain whose suppliers are beholden to those that you are disrupting, you, you uh, stand the chance of uh, some real serious politics being played against you. So, mm -hmm. you know, SpaceX, we said, look, we just have to develop all this stuff ourselves and be completely independent, sort of an island, if you will. So that's not true today. So, so, you know, back 20 years ago, it's hard for people to imagine from where they stand today, but finding investment dollars for anything in space was, was almost non-existent. And uh, one of the things Elon did was put, you know, $100 million of his own money in uh, to start up on SpaceX. And there were very few people that had that kind of money that would put that in there, but he believed in it. And that, that got other investments rolling and the success of SpaceX has caused, you know, what we see today, which is this massive uh, amount of capital flux coming in. So, so the, the, the supply chain uh, has, has come around. And so we are uh, uh, for example, buying our engines from Ursa Major in, in uh, Denver, Colorado, and they've spent you know five years and fifty million dollars trying to uh, build these engines and done a nice job. Mm -hmm. They've had you know, engines that have been running for I think three thousand minutes is uh, the total time they have on, on on testing these engines. For example, so we don't we don't have to do that. So that's the that's our number one risk in a rocket company. We've eliminated. Uh, we also eliminated the flight computer and all the software by licensing something NASA had that they developed and never used. And, uh, you know, we're finding a lot of other piece parts because of, because of all this commercial money that's coming into the industry, there's a lot more commercially available parts that are very affordable. Mm -hmm. So we're able to do this with, um, you know, a lot of the really hard stuff, long lead item, taking a lot of capital to, to put together, uh, just buying that at very inexpensive prices. And, but the, most of the major structure, the valves, the mechanisms, those sort of things, we have to build ourselves. There's, there's just not a supply chain out there for it. Plus, um, you know, those are, those are unique to, to our design. So, so uh, we're building, you know, mo most of that in-house. In um, we're, you know, we are building like the flight computers in-house based on the NASA design and uh, modifying the software and that sort of thing. That's kind of typical. Um, but, uh, you know, it's about, I would say, Probably sixty percent of the of the vehicle we're building by mass in, internally, and then the rest is uh, the supply chain. Mm -hmm. So, um, on the website, which is a is a really well designed website for everyone listening, definitely like check out the show notes because, uh, especially when there's like a lot of technical people, I'm always surprised by like the quality of a website and uh, like what people build. And normally, it's um, it's sometimes it's not very good, but like yours is like it's like like almost like professionally done. Like it looks so fantastic. I'm, uh, okay. I'm curious, uh, which is just like a long way of saying like, you know, great job. And anyone listening in, like definitely take more time to build a great website because it like, it's, it's like your storehouse. Um, yeah. The, I, I was curious, you talk about building satellites, I think in-house and the rocket in-house mm -hmm. and are they 
both proportionally the same amount, like 60% and then like uh, the supply chain coming in and you being like the factory that puts it all together? Yeah. So the satellite supply chain is a little bit even more external. Um, you know, so far we, we've um, had one satellite under contract. We've just delivered our first flight hardware a week ago. On that, we've got two more copies of that. Looks like coming down. We've got a $100 million uh, chunk of a very large billion-dollar kind of satellite we're going to be building. And that's quite different than, than the smaller one we've been working on. So, um, you know, that one <laughs> is going to have probably a lot more internally built stuff. And so we're, we're part of a much larger team. Uh, that'll be announced in about six months. You'll, you'll hear about it. It'll be a very, very big splash publicly. But, uh, uh, you know, most of the satellite stuff is very mature, the supply chain. You can get your credit card and go out on, on the internet. And I think it's Cube's cubesatshop.com you can buy pieces of a satellite and you know, bring it home and put it together on your kitchen table if you like that's how mature a lot of that supply chain has become some of the bigger satellites less so you know it becomes a little bit more bespoke every 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 bit of piece there but you know our our our, our engineering talent and and uh, that is is really kind of the same folks we have a dedicated group on satellites but they also work on the rocket and uh, you know we, we just have to manage the time and, and everybody wants to go see the new thing, right? So, mm -hmm. so when they're putting the satellite together, all the rocket guys want to come over and look, and then the satellite guys want to come see the, the latest tanks that are coming together. You know, so it's it's kind of a kind of a management challenge there. But you know, we're old enough; we know how to walk and chew gum at the same time. So, mm -hmm. is there um, is there especially in this last year? You know, from going from like zero to one, I think it's been about a year. Um, has there have there been any standout-ish um, highs and lows in this experience as you're trying to go from like zero to one, having, you know, essentially everything in your head with your team to actually building it and launching it? So, yeah, we were almost at two years. So it was October mm. of 2019 when we started. And we started in complete darkness. We didn't, uh, didn't want to talk to anybody about what we we're doing. So Michael and uh, and I both put money in to start it. And uh decided to, you know, very quietly go through the design work. So just as we were starting to ramp up uh, both the, the, the seed round and uh, we were starting to add a couple employees back in uh, February of uh, 2020, uh, this thing called COVID hits. <laughs> and so that was a moment of, uh, I won't call it panic, but it was pause, you know, it gave us serious pause. Um, fortunately for us, we hadn't spent a lot of the money that we had put into the company. And uh, again, you know, that frugality in the, in the early days paid off. And we had one employee that we had to let go uh, that we had just, we just started with. And uh, so we were unsure whether we were going to be able to raise money. And, you know, the capital pretty, fro pretty much froze up for a few months until people could understand that this was not the end of the world. Um, but we were looking at, you know, going into a long winter, frankly. And uh, we, we thought, oh, you know, we picked the wrong time. Turned out to actually be the best time. There was a lot of uh, weak players that were in this field that we would be competing against that, you know, the, the VCs pulled their money. And uh, I mean, they were literally pulling the money out of the company saying we're done and mm -hmm. they would let the companies die. So, so a lot of our would-be competitors died off because of COVID, you know, but we couldn't see that at the time. And we couldn't see that the, the the capital markets would get healthy again fairly quickly and so on. So, um, you know, the, the that was really kind of the low. The high was when it really came back and it came back with a vengeance. And and we were able to raise money without actually getting on an airplane because nobody was getting on airplanes. <laughs> yeah, that's the bane of my existence is getting on an airplane. I, I probably have three to four million miles on my hind end in those, in those uh, tin cans in the sky. And, and I just don't want to do it anymore. But you have to, you know, you have to go see people to, you know, especially to raise money. You know, they don't give money to people they don't know. Mm -hmm. So, but we were able to raise our first round, um, you know, without even getting in an airplane, not a single time, right? Um, so, so I think that was kind of the high was, you know, when we raised our first round. And, and uh, you know, we, we've since uh, been, been able to hire some really key people. Uh, and, and that's always made me, made me feel good when... Uh, you know, you get somebody that's willing to invest their their time into your company. It's not it's not even so much the money, you know, but somebody's willing to put you know a portion of their life into it. That means something. They they believe in you. They believe in your vision, 
And uh, so we've got, we've got a couple more of those. I'm still chasing that hopefully we can announce soon, but uh, uh, yeah, those are, those are all the highs. And of course, you know, when we got our satellite contract and, you know, new money always, always uh, excites. We actually were cash flow positive during the COVID thing. That satellite contract came right in the middle of COVID. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so we were cash flow positive for about a year. Uh, That was, that was good. So, so now we're in the building phase. So we're, um, we're, we're building the first prototype. It's about done and, uh, you know, trying to figure out what manufacturing techniques work, what don't, where we have to change the design to accommodate the uh, different techniques. And uh, so we're about to start our second version of this uh, prototype that we'll actually go out and do all the mechanical testing on. The uh, engines are, uh, we had to do a slightly different version of the engine that Ursa Major had, and uh, they upgraded it to what they call the 2.0. And uh, so those are going through qual testing. That's doing very well. Um, so that's about done, and we'll start seeing engines here in, uh, in about November of this year. And uh, we're going to work our way up to a uh, stage level test where we put these, the first stage and the second stage on a test stand and just go fire them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a little more than just going and fire them, but, you know, we're going to start by filling and draining and going through that whole exercise and then, then cold flowing, then ignition. And, but you want to test this before you fly it. So we're going to essentially fly it on the ground by the time we're done testing it. Makes sense. The, um, so for all the technology that you could use, I'm curious, uh, I've been reading about, you know, 3D printed engines, and uh, I'm sure you get even more advanced stuff than what I'm able to read. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, is there anything uh, really exciting coming out uh, that you're, I mean, maybe not in the first prototype, but maybe in the later prototype that you're excited to, to add into it? So Ursa Major uses 3D printing mm. called additive manufacturing for their engines, and um, they use it to good effect. Um, I'm, I'm not as big a fan of, of that for most everything else. You know, the engines seem to be uh, a, good, a good thing to use it on. Uh, we, we do everything else pretty, pretty traditionally. You know, we're, we're making our tanks out of aluminum and, and so forth. But the thing that I'm always amazed by is, is the progress the material science is making. And, uh, you know, for example, the, the aluminum alloys get better and better with time. And uh, the composites, the carbon fiber composites, you know, the materials just get better and better and better. And so that, that really helps us, you know, create better products and, uh, you know, make them lighter and more, more powerful and so forth. But, you know, it's a funny business, this um, space business, you know, it, there's, there's incremental progress. There's nothing really that's revolutionary. And there's certainly nothing out on the horizon I'm aware of that's revolutionary, right? So, so one of the things that's, pretty uh, making a lot of progress in, in, in satellite worlds is what's called ion propulsion. So mm-hmm. instead of burning chemicals, you, you actually use electricity or some, some electromagnetic form to accelerate uh, a mass and create thrust through that. And it's very high, highly efficient to do this. So like if you want to use a, a, uh, a measure of comparison, uh, it's like better gas mileage on your, on your satellite. So you have to take a certain amount of fuel with you on a satellite to expel out the back to create thrust to move around in space. And just like you have to have gasoline in your car to move around on the, on the roads. Um, so, so, you know, we're, we're going from traditionally like 10 miles of the gallon to a thousand miles of the gallon. That's kind of the difference, you know, with some of this electric propulsion, but the problem with it is, is, is it has very low thrust. So you, you just have to leave it on all the time. So over time, it makes a big difference. Um, it just doesn't have high enough thrust to be able to use it on the ground. So maybe in the future, you know, nuclear-powered electric propulsion, things like that, could could give us some really highly efficient stuff that would just change the face of rocketry. But for now, we're pretty well stuck with chemi- chemical rockets. And, and so, no, I don't really see anything on the horizon, to be honest, other than the normal progression of materials and electronics and so on, which is a lot. Not to say it's, it's minimal, <clears throat> but it's nothing... Nothing's gonna, you know, change this industry by a factor of a hundred. Okay, and that makes sense. The, and I think uh, an ion engine we use it on a uh, satellite, right? I think it was like Voyager or something. And it's like that now it's the fastest moving man-made object in history. It's going like seventy thousand miles per second or something like that. And uh, I'm not aware Voyager had an ion on it, but uh, I think there was a sat. It was like a. It wasn't a satellite. It was like one of we like chucked it at, in the solar system and had a, an ion an ion drive or something on it. And the, if I remember it right, it's been a couple of years, but 
and it had like the the thrust was like if you put like a sheet of paper on your on your hand like it wasn't very much and it just like it was additive because there's no friction to slow you down yeah yeah pretty much all modern satellites are working on that basis because this is so much more efficient even the the communication satellites that go to geostationary orbit you know they they have gotten rid of the chemical propulsion to boost themselves up because normally when you're launched into that orbit uh, you start off very close to the Earth, and you have to boost yourself up. The satellite does, and so they use electric propulsion. They'll, you know, they accept like a year where you've got to sit in this maneuvering orbit where you're just run, running this low thrust propulsion because it adds, you know, ten years of the life of the satellite by uh, having all that fuel conserved for operating uh, at, at geo. That's usually the the lifetime limit of those satellites. And then all, all the deep space stuff is starting to use it, although. You know, if you're going to Mars, for example, tra- trajectory correction maneuvers, you really have to have, uh, you know, hard, hard old school propulsion because you just need the thrust levels. Mm-hmm. I think in the movie, The Martian, at least the book, they actually have ion drives. And it, okay. I thought that was really weird because I wouldn't think it had it would give you a lot of kick. Um, well, but that's, you know, yeah, that's that's fantasy for you. Power. Well, yeah. yeah, it was, it, yeah, so Andy Weir, who wrote the book originally, I know Andy, and uh, very well informed. So so technically that that movie is very well done, and it doesn't offend me. I usually don't watch sci-fi movies because they offend the hell out of me. But, uh, you know, that one was really good. And, uh, you know, yeah, the, 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 the ion thrusters that they were using, they were probably nuclear powered, you know, because you need megawatts of power to run these things. And that's the that's the downside of it. Uh, but you know, if you've got nuclear reactors, you can do that. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the the ability to get the bigger thrust has really never been developed because we've never been really willing to put nuclear reactors in space. We did in the '60s, and that kind of became a uh, faux pas to do that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, people have been really allergic to uh, nuclear power for yeah. for some time, which is really it's like really efficient. You know, like uh, it's much more better for the environment for people as a whole yeah. uh, but then you have like a i think there's only like one state like north dakota or south dakota that's trying out a new nuclear plant like there hasn't really been any new ones being developed which is unfortunate because the u.s has a hor- horrible energy grid it's like really 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 yeah, now, old arizona with the the nuclear power plant there the palo verde uh, was the last one built and mm-hmm. uh the uh you know we here in arizona we we export energy to the rest of the united states including california so every time they get pissed off at Arizona, you know, the governor's like, we're happy to not sell you electricity. And then suddenly the attitudes change. Yeah. Uh, that's what we, we got to do. The, for, um, for for what you're building, I'm, I'm curious, what made you uh, choose? And I think if I'm pronouncing them right, they're called Hadley engines, the ones that you're getting from. Right. Uh, yeah. What made you choose those over any other ones that you could have uh, potentially gone with? So they were the furthest along of anybody, mm-hmm. and um, I was familiar with them already. And uh, uh, so, so we went up and visited the the plant. And uh, first time I saw these engines, this was pre-COVID. Uh, you know, it reminded me of a Ferrari V12. Frankly, mm-hmm. the workmanship on it was just incredible. And uh, to me, the workmanship is a reflection of of how well the engineering is done and how much people really care about what it is they're building and and you know they had safety wiring on these tiny little these little these little screws that were just exquisitely done and you, you could just tell someone very skilled was working on this and they, they spent the time to do it and I, I was just just on the surface of these things I was just very impressed with it and I made the decision right then and there to, to uh, work with these guys because the CEO I just you know it was like like he was my long lost brother and uh, you know he uh uh, he and I had never met before, but, uh, you know, when I walked in, first met him, you know, one of the first things he said, he said, I'm glad you're back in the saddle, you know, sorry, sorry, the last thing happened to you, but, you know, really, really glad I'm, you know, it's good to see good people getting back in it. And I thought, okay, I like this guy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we've been, we've been at a very good relationship ever since then. Joe Laurenti is the CEO and just a fantastic person, you know, the kind of, kind of people you want to, you want to deal with. And, you know, as I was saying earlier, this 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 idea of you have to like the people that you work with and you have to have good good quality people extends to really your subcontractors, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, if this is a kind of guy without uh, uh, good moral values and and you know good honest person, then uh, I wouldn't want to deal with him, frankly. You know, it's the old adage of 
you'd rather have a handshake with an honest man than a contract with a crooked one. You know, that's really true. So, so we looked no further and uh, we've not been disappointed a second. Makes sense. Uh, I, uh, a number of my listeners, a number of my friends have like, um, they, they think it's, they, they know it's important to like surround yourself with the right type of people, but then they don't, uh, either through ex- experience or, or reflection, um, they haven't noticed that if they have those people around you, it, they, they have a disproportionate uh, negative impact on whatever you're building. If to have, um, you know, someone in your supply chain, subcontractors, family, friends, whoever it is, um, if they're, if they, you know, if they don't match and they don't match North star and, uh, they, they cause problems or anything like that. Like it, it, you're already trying to build something that's already hard enough. Like you don't need someone come from nowhere and like punch you in the side of the head or something like that. Yeah. Well, think of yourself as, as a CEO, right? Imagine you wake up and you're CEO of a rocket company and you've got a 12 hour day ahead of you. Would you rather spend, uh, say four of those hours, dealing with the shenanigans of some, some, some contractor or even an employee, right. Who's playing games, wants your job, uh, wants to undermine you, uh, you know, wants a little bit more money and is, you know, we're trying to set up somebody else in the company, you know, maybe to form a lawsuit or, or, you know, a supplier who, who's trying to get more money out of you, or would you rather go solve problems on the factory floor? You know, we need, or go raise money or go hire better people, right. Go recruit good people. I mean, the choice is really simple. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> if you're choosing the wrong people to surround yourself with, you're choosing problems, right? It's, it's that simple. Yeah, it's uh, it's like front-loading the work so that when you actually get into doing stuff, it's all basically been taken care of. Um, yep. What What is the element of, 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 is it that you get most excited about? Is it being on the factory floor, floor getting, you know, some stuff in your hands and, and working on it? Is it... Um, you know, meeting with some country. I'm just kind of curious, like, what is the element of what you're building that you get really excited about and you, and you like, you know, jump out of bed to go and be a part of it? So since I was a little kid, I've always been a builder, right? It didn't matter if I was building a, a toy Lego kit or, you know, a go-kart or a mini bike, or later it was houses and then it became businesses and, and cars and, and then rockets and satellites. I'm building something or I'm creating something I'm always happy. And, and, and this doesn't apply to like Amazon furniture that arrives at your house. That's not building something that, 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 that sucks. Right. But to be creative and to, to put something together that nobody's ever done before uh, and, to, and apply your creativity, that's, that's what gets me out of bed every day, you know? So, so, you know, as far as uh, when I go to work, you know, one of, my, one of my favorite things to do is walk the factory floor. And uh, not only are these my people, I mean, the, I, I relate to these people. I, Hell, I paid my way through college as a Ford mechanic, you know, so I totally relate to what they're doing and the value of what they're doing. And, and I just like to see what's happening. And that's where you get the truth, right? You see, see the ground truth of what's going on. Uh, and I'm not saying engineers lie, but, you know, they have a different version of, of reality than, than uh, what, what sometimes the guys on the factory floor are. So, so that's, that, you know, that's what, that's what keeps me going. It certainly isn't getting in airplanes and traveling the world and seeing New York city for the 78th time or anything like that. Yeah. There's, there's far too many people in New York city as well. Like, uh, I, I, <laughs> you know, like the, the Midwest Arizona and stuff, it's, it's, it's spaced yeah. out enough, you know, you can build something, you can, you know, build a rocket, you know, if it makes a lot of noise. Like who's really going to be mine, you know, mindful of it. You know, you could drop a shoe in New York and I bet someone would have a problem with it. Don't get me wrong. I love New York actually. Midtown. Yeah. I really love going there, but it, it doesn't excite me the idea of getting on an mm-hmm. airplane and going there, you know, but if I take my wife and, you know, she and I like, like metropolitan places, we'll have a good time, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not what excites me though. For um, as, as a leader, is there a, is there a way you found to build like the, like, I guess the analogy is like a, the engine for the team. Like how do you build the team together with the right culture and everything in mind? Um, are there like processes that you use or, uh, are touchstones that you find to be really effective in making sure that you can, you know, cultivate the right people, you know, have people who, you know, you're looking to hire, come in, check it out and know that they're going to have a really great environment, you know, as, as like, you know, the person like the, the buck stops with you, I'm curious how you, you know, build that type of engine. Uh, even if it's not like a literal engine, of course. So, so the idea is pretty simple, actually. What you want to do is create a, a company where everyone hopefully will want to work there forever. And you start with yourself. You, know, you have to ask yourself, what is it that would make me want to work at a company forever, not ever leave? And uh, 
it's different for everybody, right? So, so that unique culture of a company starts with the leader and, and you have to be authentic about that and live that, that, that value, you know? So, so I just mentioned, you know, being a builder that <laughs> just today, we, I had a resume come across my desk that, you know, somebody was very, very nicely offering uh, as somebody they knew was good. And I looked at the resume and they were an analyst out of Washington, DC, not a builder. And I said, not, that's not what we want. So we builders want to be around each other. So, you know, so in our, in our case, that's what we do. We try to hire only people who are builders and, you know, okay, we have accountants and things like that, but, you know, by and large, you know, I'm talking about the engineers and the, and the, and the management and so on have that same mindset of, you know, creativity applied and, and, and solving problems. And, uh, so, you know, so then, you know, the other parts of it are, you know, do you, do you want a, uh, a, a company that, you know, everybody works seven days a week, 12 hours a day, and nobody, nobody lives and breathes anything else. Well, that was really SpaceX and still is to some degree, I understand. And that, that tore up a lot of people. You know, I've had friends from the early days that say that they, they have PTSD from SpaceX. You know, I left early. One of the reasons I left was, you know, I could sense that coming on. And I've always been a person who believes in the value of family. And, uh, you know, I like my, my alone time. I like my time at home. You know, I, I, I love my wife. I don't want to, uh, don't want to lose my family. So, you know, I extend that to other people, you know, Hey, let's get in. Maybe we work 10, 12 hours a day during the week, but we take the weekends off and it's possible to build a very valuable company and uh, do it fast without, without working people to death. So, you know, you just, you just kind of continue on that line of thinking and you, you know, for example, financial uh, rewards, we're all ultimately economic creatures yeah, that's one of the reasons we're in this business. And okay, we all get a salary, but every now and then when, when you give somebody a damn good bonus or you have a program that is, is milestone-based bonuses, people really do uh, respond to that. So, you know, so we implement those. We have a, we have a very big bonus pool. And even as a startup, right, it, it's very, very effective. So then um, finally, uh, you know, the other thing I, I always look at is a company I'd want to work for forever was one that I, you know, as an employee, I can see what's going on. So I try as, as, as the guy at the top to be as open as I can. I can't be open about everything, obviously, but I try to be as open as I can about, you know, where we're going, what the vision is, what's going well, what's going wrong, uh, how do we fix it? And that's the only way you get people to buy in to, you know, becoming part of the solution is, is to be open about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, uh, so, so we try to do that and, and it works, you know, the, the times when I've seen companies come apart is when you let tribalism start and uh, when you start getting an us and them, and that's really two different cultures developing within the company and you can't allow that to happen. You know, even, even the culture from like the guys on the, on the shop floor to the guys in the, in the engineering, the minute you start hearing, you know, the engineers bitching about the guys on the floor and saying, well, they don't understand, or the guys on the floor say, well, those damn engineers, you know, that's when you got to get together and knock the heads, right? Mm -hmm. So I expect my engineers to be out on the floor. I expect my shop guys too to understand that the engineers have a different job than they do, that, that, that they couldn't do their job without the engineers and the engineers couldn't do their job without the, the shop floor guys. So, so that, that's, that's what's worked for me over the years. And I'm sure everybody has their own formula, but uh, I think ultimately it comes back to the, the adage is we're creating a, uh, you know, a society here and, uh, you know, what, uh, what, what makes us stay around, right? Mm -hmm. And ultimately people are the most valuable asset in the company because they're the source of intellectual property and, and, and value creation. Mm -hmm. It sounds like um, it's just on the last point about, you know, if you start seeing like an us versus them internally uh, happening, it's, it's almost like, you know, realigning it to the actual vision, you know, like the only them that should exist is really like, what's the, what's the purpose, you know, like trying to solve this problem. And if you're, mm -hmm. if you're finding each other, you're not finding the problem. Um, I'm curious in terms of like finding builders. So I once, I once like, uh, from like six in the morning to like 10 at night, I had to interview people cause I had to hire like 20 people over the course, of like three months, but, um, it was, it was not fun. And I'm always curious. Uh, I've, I've seen like horrible things. Like there was a person I won't name names, but like they had like an earpiece in and someone was feeding them the answers <laughs> to the highly technical questions. And uh, um, I mean, good, good on them, you know, but uh, I'm curious, like, how do you, I'm sorry, what? No, I, I just, oh my. Yeah, right. Um, so I'm just curious, like, uh, how do you, how do you know when you have a builder 
versus someone who's just pretending to be a builder? Like how, how, how do you, how do you figure that out? Pretty hard to, he's pretty hard to imitate it. Right. Mm. Cause if, if you get to, I, I never ask the kind of questions a lot of interviews ask, you know, like, uh, well, what did you do for, you know, da, da, da. I look at the resume and I look for holes and, you know, unemployment gaps of four years or things like that. You know, then I'll ask questions about it, but by and large don't care. Right. So I, I try to get to know the person. And when you, when you get to know somebody personally, you ask them, you know, what, what kind of things do you like to do? You know, what, what do you, you know, what, what's your home life like? You know, you, you're just trying to get a sense of the person and uh, builders, builders, we know each other. <laughs> we just, we recognize it, you know, um, and uh, they get excited. They get passionate about this idea of building and people feel this, you know, and I, I've run into people that say, oh yeah, I like to build things, and you know, but you, you know, they, they don't give examples. They don't say, wow, yeah. you know, I've got nine cars that are unrestored that I don't know how to finish. You know, that's a builder, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe a, a lack of self-control or something, but still th those are the people you're looking for. And, uh, you know, one of the funny odd things is we, we find uh, people who have hobbies as cars uh, fit in really, really well, you know, in, in our, in our world. But, you know, it's, it's, it is sometimes hard to get through it, but you know, you've got to, you got to not look at, trying the intellectual process as much as just trying to understand who they are as a, as a person. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I agree. I think what most people do in an interview, it's like, it's not really like it. I think people should be more meta about it. Like how does this question actually get you to the point of understanding this person to know if, if they're going to be a great fit and then getting, helping them understand if that, if they're what they're looking for, you know, a lot of people see it as like a one-sided thing, but it sounds like, Yours is uh, two-sided, like you want to understand them and you want them to understand what it's like to work there so it can be, a, you know, a match by the end. Um, Should be a two-way street, yeah. Yeah. So um, I think the the last little bit we wanted to talk about um, with respect to your time is uh, there's a lot of like new reports coming out on unidentified this, unidentified that. And I've tried looking into it um, just because it's like, it just keeps coming up. People keep asking me, like, we'll have someone come on and tell us like what's real, what's not real. And so, uh, you know, you think about space, you're in space, you have right. a ton of experience. What, what is the fact in the fiction in terms of like what, in, in what you're encountering, you know, um, what's real and not real. I think there's, there's like the Pentagon report. It's saying that, you know, people are unreporting cause they feel there's a stigma. So then like, what's really there. There's like a Tic Tac stuff. There was like a cigar thing that came through the, uh, the solar system. I'm just curious, um, in terms of, you know, what is actually true or that you feel is true or you suspect is real like what is what what is what is the the phenomena that is now coming out more okay. well, let me start with this so big part of my career i spent in uh you know military applications of space and i had clearances that were pretty high and i will tell you honestly uh, i wouldn't be lying to you about this i just if, if i were cleared and knew about stuff like this i would say no comment or wouldn't talk mm -hmm. about it more likely I can tell you, I never saw anything that led me to believe that that we have aliens, that we have alien craft, that that aliens are visiting us and we're hiding that. I, I have never once got a whiff of that or seen anything of that nature. So I wouldn't call me a skeptic, however, because you know if you look at the odds of of life existing outside of Earth, it's very high, and I have absolutely no doubt that life exists outside of Earth. It may even exist in our solar system in the form of, you know, amoebas and, and, you know, the primitive life forms, but, you know, advanced life that's visiting the earth, uh, it's possible. Uh, it seems very unlikely to me just from the basic physics as we understand them today. Now, I, I, I will grant you that we may not understand time travel uh, at all. And that uh, there's a possibility that, you know, the, 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 the wormholes and things like that could allow you to actually travel across great vast expanses of space in, in realistic energy and time, time uh, uh, scales. But, but right now I don't understand how that happens. So I'm skeptical. So, so the question then becomes what of these sightings, right? And uh, you know, are, are they phenomenology of weather? I doubt it. Right. I honestly actually think, the vast majority of our weapon systems that are classified either, uh, you know, in the past, I think, you know, in the forties and fifties, a lot of that was probably Soviet stuff that, uh, you know, people were picking up on, you know, testing those things like that, 
or it's probably, you know, modern U.S. weapon systems. If you think about the weapon system been retired and, uh, you, you know, like the SR-71, which flew, I mean, unclassified, it was three and a half Mach. So it was pretty fast, you know, and uh, we know that there's hypersonic stuff going on right now. Wouldn't surprise me in the least that a lot of these things you see in the cigars, the this, the that, they're hypersonic weapon systems of some sort that are just going very fast or, or very, very fast uh, reconnaissance systems. You know, that stuff gets classified and there's only very uh, a few number of people that get read into that sort of thing. Um, and that I do get whiffs of, right, of, you know, some, some advanced capabilities. You know, I see things, I put things together in my head. I don't comment about it. But uh, you, you can see how that, those sort of things can come together just from, from looking at the industry. So I have no doubt that, you know, the Navy pilots, we've all seen those, um, those videos and, and they saw something real there and they were, they were maneuvering like hell. I find it curious as well. I'd really like to know what the hell they are. Um, and one of them, you know, goes underwater. Well, guess what? I worked on a, uh, on a submarine launch DARPA uh, uh, UAV back, I don't know, 15 years ago. So things that would pop out from under the water and go back under the water that doesn't surprise me. You know, there's nothing magic about that. But, uh, you know, living underneath, if you were an alien civilization, you didn't want to disturb the earth, I suppose living underneath the water would make sense. But, uh, you know, think about if we were uh, an interplanetary species and we actually did go to the stars, you know, my guess is we wouldn't want to disturb the life forms. Mm -hmm. you know, that's sort of our mindset. Uh, I suppose there could be aggressive mindsets. It, to me, the the, uh, the history of mankind speaks more to the idea that if there are aliens out there, they're benign and, and they would leave us alone, right? Because we're still here. If they were aggressive and you know, fleshy and all those things you see in these sci-fi movies, we wouldn't be here. It would be long, long ago consumed and uh, overcome by them. So, so that's kind of where, where I come in on that. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of skeptics out there that try to you know, talk about you know, this, that, and the other. I had some friends in, in the balloon industry that that uh, were brought in to try and explain away the uh, Roswell stuff, but there's probably more to the Roswell incident than than, than anybody's going to admit today, but I doubt it was a alien spacecraft, but it pro probably something that looked very much like it. I, I don't doubt that what people saw, they saw. Mm -hmm. So then, um, the is there anything that... Uh, I got this like this thought stuck in my head, so I'll say it. But um, I was wondering, like, what's so special about Earth? You know, like, there's nothing. I mean, other than humans and like the life that's evolved here, like, why would that's you life. come? Yeah, you know, like, you know, like, there's nothing you could get here that you couldn't get on like an asteroid belt, like titanium, whatever. It's not like the resources. So then it's um, I just you know, like, why why come here? And then so that if you were coming here, you'd be like a curious person. So hopefully, you'd be positive. But well, is there any, you know. Is, if you like to hunt, you know, and, and you eat human meat, you know, yeah, I guess. One explanation. yeah, but, the but it doesn't hold up to logic, does it? Right. Yeah. You know, this would be the only place you could get human, human meat if that's what you were after. Mm -hmm. But if that's what they're after, we'd have long ago been gone. Yeah. Gone Unless the there's like the, the, the dreadlock predators from, uh, I don't know if you've ever <laughs> seen that movie, uh, with, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. No. Oh uh, yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Right. The, when the alien came hunting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, that I, was pretty compelling. Yeah. yeah, that was a that was a great uh great movie. They 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 have biffed every sequel. Like they cannot make a, a good one after that. But the first one was really great. Um, is there is there anything out there that you think is compelling in terms of that makes you wonder? Um, it, it doesn't have to be like intellectual alien. Uh, um, but is there anything that you you see in terms of yeah. uh, what what makes me uh, what I find compelling is some of these historical accounts of aliens, right? That uh, you know, people, people, you know, sometimes call them gods, sometimes all these other things. But there, there are historical accounts that suggest that alien-like creatures visited us. And I find that very interesting. And I'll watch, I'll watch those shows. Uh, I don't know that I believe them, you know, but, but it's kind of hard to come up with explanations otherwise, right? And it would fit in, you know, if, if you thought about what would a spacefaring civilization look like, it might be one that comes down and actually has a look around, right? Um, and particularly if they could determine, and I don't know how you determine this, that, uh, you know, the technology was relatively primitive and they posed, the, the, you know, the life forms posed little threat, right, to, uh, to you landing. 
And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it maybe is like church missionaries. They want to bring the, the word of science and all these other things that is suggested in some of these, these, these supposed alien encounters of the, of the ancient world. And, uh, I don't know. I, I find that interesting. I find some of these, uh, some of these technological feats that, you know, the ancient civilizations have accomplished interesting. I don't necessarily attribute them to aliens, but, um, you know, the, the inventiveness and creativity of the human mind is pretty, pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the, the pyramids could easily be built by other, other means. Right. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's about as close as I get, you know, what, one of the guys I knew when I was, when I was young, uh, was Carl Sagan and I, I knew him through the planetary society, which I was doing work for. And he showed up one day, uh, uh complete surprise to me in Toulouse, France, where I was working and, uh, wanted a tour of this Mars balloon we were working on, uh, for, a, for a real Mars mission. So I picked him up and drove him around and, you know, took him to, you know, the, the French space agency and showed them some of the things we were working on and talked to a few people. And then we went out to uh, where they, where they build the uh, aircraft until it was the, the Airbus. And we had a big, huge full-scale balloon that was being inflated and took him out to see that, but we got stuck in traffic and uh, he started getting irritated, you know, and uh, uh, then, then, you know, he's looking around and, and, and he asked me, he said, he says, Jim, are you a man of faith? And, and I said, uh, you know, I was early twenties and I said, you know, I really wish I were because it make my life easier. And, uh, and then he, he, he sort of stroked his chin and he, and he said, he says, who has more faith? Do you think he says, is it a, is it a scientist that looks out at the night sky and sees billions of points of light and imagines little green men on each one of those points of light? Or is it uh, a grown man that looks out on this beautiful earth that we inhabit and imagines that a deity created this? Uh, I said, I get your point, right? Faith is a is a big part of our our existence. Whether whether you're a scientist or a man of religion or whatever, uh, we all as humans have to live on faith. And I think this this business of aliens gives us a faith that we're not alone in the world. Um, you know, as a species, that that there's uh, you know it's, it's, that there's something greater out there that connects us. That there's a there's a future, right? Beyond this lonely little blue globe in the middle of space that's <laughs> going around a sun that's going to die eventually right and mm-hmm. also this gives us the ultimate faith makes sense the um i i definitely see that perspective the yeah that's a really good question that carl sagan asked you though and um I'm, i have like every one of his books behind me but the, yeah. a fantastic author um what you recognize where where that thinking was coming from yeah what what yeah well, that that thinking where it was coming from. Which book was that in? Uh, probably Pale Blue Dot. Or no, oh no, contact. no, no, Contact, Contact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what Contact was all about. Was, mm. I, I was sitting watching Contact in the theater a number of years later, and I I just was shocked. I said, "Wow, that's the conversation I had with him." Mm. Right, and it, it never occurred to me. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Like uh, a conversation he had with you is is the a larger thing that he was thinking about that he basically translated into a movie. Yeah. That's exciting. You always it's kind of like the butterfly effect with life. You never really know how things add up, like how one conversation right. can affect it. You know, a fantastic movie and book. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of my favorite people. Yeah, was, he was actually a decent human being. Uh, I have to say, I thought he'd be a jerk, but he turned out to be just a really decent human being. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, his wife. Uh, uh, really, really missed him and loved him. And she's the one that that got the money together to do Cosmos One, which we flew out of a Russian submarine in uh, 1990. You know, it was a, the world's first solar sail. So Annie, uh, Annie was a decent is is a decent person. She's still around. Is there um? It could be a scientist. It could be a rocket. These are like my last three questions. Um, is there anyone that you follow that uh, you feel that? Um, gets missed in the mainstream you know like is there anyone that uh they could be an author and you know maybe recommend their book or is there just a person that you you'll read their publications whenever it comes out um they'd recommend people check out so you'll find this funny but garth stein um he wrote uh the art of racing in the rain i love his book and the movie was pretty good too um but you know he he talks about uh, uses racing as a metaphor for life and he talks about not ever giving up and, you know, the, you know, you, you can sometimes go off the track, or get stuck or crash and 
you know, but the real racer doesn't give up. They don't, they don't say, ah, oh, it's over. They you know, do everything they can. You watch these guys, you know, and they're, they're in the mud. They're going back and forth and back and forth. They're trying to, or, or they smash the front end. They're like, the hell with that. They get back on the track, you know, and they're dumping shit all over the place. But, but that's, that's the, that's the mentality uh, that, that pushes humanity forward. Right. And so I love his, his books on, on this and particularly the art of racing in the rain. He's, he's one of my favorite authors in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna have to check that out. The, uh, I always think it's interesting, like, uh, often, like when you feel like giving up, if you just go a little further, you know, it usually works out like giving up is like a, an emotion, but it has no like basis in reality. Like you're just kind of feeling something, but if you just let it ride, it usually works out. And if it doesn't, like, at least you did your best and that right. you, you leave like with that confidence and, and knowing you did your best out there. Um, is there any area that you're uh, right now that you need help with um are you looking for to hire someone are you having a problem that you could use help with just it's it's a kind of like a blast for the audience or to put it out there to you know at least maybe in the universe to, to ask for help and <laughs> yeah we're, we're raising money right now in our series a any qualified investors uh just just give us a call we're uh we're always looking for good people on the mm-hmm. investors just like we're looking for good people to work for us and uh we we uh, we like some investors who are simpatico with our with our vision, right? And that makes all the difference in the world. I've had good and bad. I've had the big big evil ones, and it turns out to be one of the worst things you can do. So, mm. uh, yeah, anybody that's interested, you know, we're, we're always happy to talk. Sweet. And the contact information that I've sent, found that is public will be in the show notes. Um, so yeah. I, I, yeah. So so if you if you like this, uh, just send send Jim uh, an email, or you know, ping me, and I'll and I'll help as well. Um, or, you can go to my website, jimcantrell.com and send me a, uh, inquiry. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, is there, is there a question you have? And I can give you like the one that I've been wondering about for some time, just like, you know, give you some time, but that you don't have the answer to, or that you'd love for someone in the audience to give you the answer to, or like maybe work with you to have the answer to. So the one that I've been thinking of is, you know, you have the Fermi paradox. I think that's like the Fermi equation where it basically says there's lots of life out there. Like how, what would the equation look like if we were the only life? You know, um, that, you know, how horrific would that be? That's what I've been wondering, you know, like, can you like twist the Fermi paradox to be like, if, if we really were the only, you know, sentient life and there's already like sentient life on earth. So like, you know, we're not even alone in that. I'm curious, like, what would be the mathematical equation for it to come out to be one? You know, like that, that seems really weird. Um, that's what I've been thinking out, uh, a lot about. I'm not a mathematician, so I don't know how to do it, but I've been thinking about it. But what, what, what about you? That's a good one. Well, I think a lot about uh, what people call serendipity, hmm. right? And and some people call it fate. Um, I don't, I'm not a believer in fate, um, but I, I think a lot about how is it that we as human beings come together in ways that just are very unlikely. I mean, it's it's almost like the improbability machine uh, at work, you know. And how is it that this happens, right? How is it? that humans are drawn together without ever knowing each other through almost through the ether, if you will. It's, 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 this sort of other sense of attraction. And, you know, some people attribute this to a God. Some people attribute this to other mystical forces. Um, I wonder what the physics are you know, there, you know, because it's real. I know it's real. And, uh, you know, I can think about something and, and my wife will say it, <laughs> yeah, you know, I won't say it's ESP, but there's, there's something really to our existence. That's, that's another dimension completely. What mm-hmm. is it? Right. I want to know that, that, that just forever, uh, fascinates me. Right. And, and it, and it's always, I'm benefiting from it, you know? So, so I, 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 I want to know more about it. Mm-hmm. I know that like one thing I was reading and this is like a slight thing. And then definitely people, if you have an answer here, like, you know, writing, even if it's just like philosophy thing, let's, let's talk about it. Um, but like people you uh, surround yourself with, like apparently like the, the study was proposing that people you're really close with, you have like a little bit more in common with them in terms of DNA. I don't know how, like we would, you know, sense that, you know, so there's probably maybe a lot of stuff going on that we just don't know, like instinct. Um, Cause I, you know, I don't know, but I think that might be something that adds into it like like uh, somehow yeah. we're able to like to intuit and like find people like i don't yeah. know how we figure out yeah. yeah your intuition's part of it right how, how do you get this sixth sense about people your we call it gut sense you know which is almost always right where, where does that come from is it 
highly honed instinct that you know comes from our genetics and our survival over thousands and millions of years i don't know it's yeah it's a great question um then is there um anything you would like to like a quote or uh a recommendation like if you want to like leave people with a positive message or 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 something you've been thinking about um i leave it to you that's the last thing yeah so it's it's sort of motivational i guess um you know I, i want Anybody in the audience that, you know, has come from, uh, say, a common background where, you know, I'm the only uh, person in my family that that got a college education, you know, learn to dream, let yourself dream, know that you can achieve, uh, you you know, people that do great things. And I'm not saying I did great things, but people that do great things come from ordinary backgrounds, you know, so I hope that your listeners, those of you out there, you know, who, who think maybe you can't, that you, you know that you can, right? And there's been nothing in my life that I've set out to do that I've not been able to do. Okay, maybe a few times I've fallen down and bruised my knees and sometimes it's been a whole lot worse, but uh, you get back up again and you do it and I've always been able to achieve it. So I don't view myself as really anything special other than being stubborn and determined. And uh, that, that's uh, something I hope everybody can pick up. So the world needs us, needs people like that. Well, everyone, thanks for joining the Learnable Show and listening to Jim Contrell talk about what he's been building for the last couple of years, uh, as well as discuss aliens a little bit, which is a lot of fun. Uh, we also got into hiring and we discussed some books. Also recommend uh, a bunch more on my website and we're trying to revamp it, make it a little bit more fun for everybody. If there's something you want to see, let me know. If there's a type of sub- subject you want to talk about, let me know. Uh, basically, there's no one we can't talk to. So it's really, who do you want to hear from? And there's a bunch of people that I'm going to talk to just because I, I like talking to them. But if there's somebody you want to hear from, just let me know. And it's the learnwithlowell.com website that you can check us out or we're available anywhere on uh, Spotify, you name it. We're, we're based everywhere. So, and I uh, look forward to seeing you guys next week.